right. Welcome to the Bike Pack Canada podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Ryan Corey. Uh, got a got a fun, fun episode interview today with uh, a friend of mine, Tom Babin uh, from Calgary. He is a, a fellow author with uh, Rocky Mountain Books. He, he has a book uh, called Frostbike that uh, is very timely at uh, this time of the year. So we'll be chatting a little bit about that. Um, he's also the founder of a blog called uh, Shifter, uh, which deals with the, the future of uh, cycling in cities. And uh, I'm sure we can we can talk about some of the comparisons to the, the urban and uh, rural uh, uh, advocacy issues. And then uh, recently uh, got a job with uh, Travel Alberta. So we'll be, we'll be talking about all of those. So uh, Tom, welcome to the Bike Pack uh, Canada podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Ryan. Cool. Well, uh, okay. To, uh, to start, uh, I think the million dollar question is, uh, uh, you know, we, we all follow lots of people on Instagram and, uh, you know, the, the, the hardcore riders are out there and they're fully kitted, you know, fat bikes and special gloves and special shoes and boots and all that. And, um, all we ever hear about on Instagram is, um, you know, about them conquering the beast and, and riding in gnarly conditions but I'd like to know when do you, Tom? Uh, when do you? What, at what temperature do you throw in the hat and take the bus to work? <laughs> well, I still maintain that standing at the bus stop is the coldest you'll ever be in life. It's, standing there in the wind is the worst. So, you know, when I first started riding my bike in winter, and I ride mostly as a commuter in the city. I, I set my basement at about minus ten. That was cold enough for me. But that was so easy that I pushed it down to minus twenty. And then I realized, you know, once you get your legs moving and you start pumping, it's, it's staying warm. It's not hard at all. So, you know, we're in the middle of a cold snap here in Calgary. And I rode uh, last week and when it was, you know, minus 25, 26. And, you know, wind chill, if you believe in wind chill, uh, they were saying was below minus 30. And I was totally fine. So I'm not sure I have a, bait, uh, you know, a low point anymore. Although I'm sure I probably don't want to test it too much farther than that. So we'll we'll get into it a little down the line. I want to ask you some some tips about uh, you know how to how to keep your hands warm and your you know your feet warm and because I'm not I'll be you know transparent I'm not a very seasoned uh, winter cyclist. This is usually the time of the year that I head south, um, but you know I'm, I'm I'm starting to stay up here more, so I, I want to learn more about it. But before we get into that, um, maybe could you, for those of us that haven't read uh, Frostbite, can you tell us a little bit about where that project uh, evolved from and, um, you know, what, what kind of stories you talk about? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was mostly me, uh, you know, maybe 15 years ago. You know, I was a summer commuter uh, like so many other people. And then, you know, when it started to get cold, I would put my bike up in the rafters of the garage and that would be the end of it. And then... Uh, drive my car and then you know uh, for the rest of the winter but it didn't take long for me to realize how much I hated that I really miss riding you know I'd sit in traffic and see people uh, dressed you know dressed up really warmly riding by me on their bikes and I would sort of long for those summer days so I thought well let's just give it a go and uh, there weren't a lot of resources available for about winter cycling at the time so I just sort of kept notes on you know how things were going it was a lot of trial and error and I really set out to answer this question whether riding your bike in the winter is a viable thing to do or is this something only for crazy people. So that really was the question that drove uh, drove my book. Um, uh, you know, I wanted to write a book because there wasn't one out there that I wanted to read. I, I couldn't find any, so I thought, well, I can do this. So, you know, I'd been writing about cycling uh, for, the, for a newspaper for a number of years, and so it was sort of a natural extension of it. So really what drove it was, you know, answering that fundamental question 
And so, you know, I, I traveled around the world. I went to some of the most bike-friendly places uh, in the world or winter bike-friendly places. Uh, I wanted to see how other cities were doing it. Uh, I tried to track down uh, people who were doing it. You know, I uh, ended up finding the uh, guy who, one of the guys who invented the fat bike because uh, that was really exploding at the time too. So it was sort of, uh, the timing was serendipitous. All these things were happening at the same time. Cities in North America were getting more interested in, in bike infrastructure and, you know, there's this argument all the time about winter cities saying it was a waste of an investment if it's cold in your city for part of the year. And, you know, I didn't know the answer to that question. I thought, yeah, maybe it could have been. But, the, you know, the more I researched, the more places I visited, the more I saw people riding in the winter, it really showed me that, yeah, it is really a viable thing to do. There's some steps you need to do, uh, steps you need to take to, to make it a viable thing. But, you know, there's all kinds of people doing it. And I think the fundamental thing I learned out of all of that is that, riding your bike in winter, especially as a commuter, was not as hard as I thought it was going to be. So that's really where I'm sitting right now. I really encourage people to just give it a try and figure things out as you go. As, I, as you were talking and sharing some of the stories, I was I was thinking about uh, when I when was it that I read your book? And it, it dawned on me, uh, and, and this goes to show you how much of a, a, a non-winter cyclist I am, but um, I, I think it had just come out or had been out for a little bit, but uh, I had your book uh, reading it on uh, a beach in, in Hawaii underneath a palm tree. Um, and I, <laughs> I remember um, I didn't really think much of it. You know, I try to get my hands on all cycling books and I, I didn't really have any expectations, but it, I do remember it was it was quite interesting to to learn about uh, the evolution of fat biking because I, I didn't really have an understanding of where it, where it came from. Um, maybe maybe we could start there. Um, you know, can you fill us in a little bit on the, the history of, of where fat bikes came from? Yeah, well, this is, might be a better uh, platform than lay, laying on the beach in Hawaii reading about winter. You, you must be a masochist that way. <laughs> I always put winter as far from my mind as I can. But, um, yeah, I remember the first time I saw a fat bike, I was commuting here in Calgary. And, you know, I just ride a junky old mountain bike. Uh, I find winter really hard on components. So, I, you know, early on I destroyed a beloved mountain bike. And I vowed after that never to ride a nice bike in the winter anymore. The, there's so much salt and grit that gets into your components and you rust them out. And so, you know, I ride a crappy old 15, that's probably 20 years old now, an old specialized stump jumper that's uh, converted to a single speed. And I was riding this down the street, and I remember seeing this bike, like, coming across a snowy field. You know, there was, like, a, a field that hadn't been crossed by anybody. So it was, like, fresh snow, and this thing was just plowing up the snow. And I thought, oh, my God, what is that thing? And then, um, you know, that's when I started reading more and more about fat bikes. And I started, you know, most of the bike shops by then had started to pick up a few of them. They were selling them, and they are all over the place. So I started looking a bit more into it. And it's really an interesting story about how these things evolved. You know, they really come from Alaska, and there was a group of uh, cyclists there. You know, this is maybe 20, 25 years ago, I guess now, and they were um, they were mountain bikers, and there were a bunch of long, long winter rides that uh, uh, they like to do. They used to call them the I Did a Bike. Um, they were modeled off after the I Did a Ride Sled Dog Race. So these were, you know, sort of epic long uh, rides through the through the Alaskan countryside in the winter time, and. Um, you know, um, they're always looking for an edge. These guys were tinkerers. Some of them had a little bike shop. And so they're always looking for something that would help them out. And then uh, what happened, I think, was that uh, one of them, a couple of them were down at I did a, or at the uh, a big bike trade show in the States, and they saw these huge fat tires that had been developed by a guy named Ray Molino. 
he was uh, an American, but he used to run um, bike tours down through Mexico uh, through the sand. And so he had sort of stitched together a bunch of tires and created this big fat one to get over the sand. And so when these guys uh, from Alaska, among them a guy named Mark Cronwald, uh, saw these tires, the light bulb went off and said, hey, these things might work in the snow. So they had a couple of these tires shipped up um, shipped up to Alaska. Um, but of course, the, those wheels were so 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 wide, they wouldn't fit in a regular mountain bike. You know, the forks aren't wide enough. There are some adjustments that had to be made to the frame to accommodate them. So they got to work. You know, they pulled out their welders and started uh, working on a frame that would fit. So it took them a while to get it going. And then um, he he told me this. He tells this great story uh, about taking a fat bike to one of these trail rides for the first time, and everyone sort of stood back and laughed at him. Because uh, it looked totally bizarre, and if you've never seen a fat bike before, they do. They're sort of like a, a monster truck mountain bike. So he pulled up there, and everyone laughed at him. And then he took off and beat them all. So I think that was a, a pretty good sign. I actually met a guy once who was at one of those early rides, and he said he never even saw the fat bike because it was always ahead of him. He only knew it was something special because he was riding in its tracks the whole way. Uh, so you know, so Mark Gronwald and a couple of his friends started building a few of these fat bikes, and they would sell them. You know, to friends, uh, he told me they, you know, they sold a handful of them every year. Uh, he could never imagine a big market for people riding in the winter, especially on bikes like this. And they're expensive to build. They cost 5000 bucks at the time, so there wasn't a huge market. But then he got, um, he started getting some interest from down south. And then one year, he got a prototype from a company in the States called Surly, where they had uh, built their own version of a fat bike, using some of the ideas that he had incorporated into his bike. So he gave a test, gave him some feedback, didn't think much of it, and he was quite surprised when uh, Surly had come up with the Pugsley that year. And that was the first commercially uh, available fat bike, you know, made by one of the bigger mainstream companies. And, you know, looking back now, that was one of those landmark moments in the development of the fat bike. Um, it was a hit, you know, it was, uh, it was a bit of a curiosity at first, but it took off. And pretty soon, you know, more companies were building fat bikes. And now all the major manufacturers have them. It's one of the fastest growing segments in the bike industry. It's one of the great successes of the last 10 years, I think. Um, uh, but still, Mark uh, um, was shocked when people uh, took an interest in it. So, you know, you talk to him now and he, he'll tell you straight up that he made not a dime off of those things. Uh, he's given up. Last time I talked to him, he was clearing trails for a living. But um, he wasn't he wasn't bitter about the whole thing. He just sort of said it's one of those things about American capitalism. You know, he, he thought he never would have had the capital to expand it to a mass market anyway. But he said the only thing that the only time it bothers him is when he's riding his original fat bike around and people say, hey, you stole that design from Surly. So he's he's got a pretty good attitude about the whole thing. But I've been really surprised at how quickly it has taken off. Um, I went down uh, last year or two years ago, I guess, to the first ever uh, U.S. National Fat Bike Championships that were held down in Utah. And, um, you know, the fact that the bikes had gone from sort of uh, conception to a national championship within about a decade is pretty quick. I mean, the bike industry can be pretty trendy, but, you know, this was a this was a, a, a quick evolution. And, you know, I'm seeing more and more of them out here on the streets now. Um, uh, around here in Alberta, there's all kinds of trails that are being developed for them. This year in Jasper, they're having a big festival around fat bikes, or uh, you know, so it's really cool to see. I think it's really opened up the idea of riding your bike in winter, 
for a lot of people. I mean, I still don't have a fat bike. I don't, you know, I tried one out on my commute a few times and, um, you know, it seemed like too much for me. You know, they're uh, big, heavy, they tend to be bigger bikes and they're a little less efficient and I just didn't feel like I needed it. So I still don't have one, but I certainly see all the benefits of them. And I encourage people to try them out, especially if they're worried about uh, slipping on the snow and ice, they can be great for that sort of thing. So it's really, I think the most important part of it may be that it's open to people's eyes to the realization that it is possible to ride your bike in winter, even if you're not riding a fab bike. But, um, and this is one of those cases where I think the recreational side of it is really spill over into the commuter side of it too. So it's really nice to see that, um, you know, that sort of the, the growth of that part of the industry together. So, so you're in Calgary. Do you like? Do you actually see people riding fat bikes to work, commuters, or, or are they staying to tr- traditional bikes? Yeah, I see them um, more and more every year. I see them, um, and you can often hear them coming because they're so loud. <laughs> you know, if you get a studded fat bike tire rolling up a pavement behind you, you can certainly hear them coming. But uh, more and more, and I think they're a good option for people. I mean, um, if you've got the money and you can commit to cleaning that bike after that salty ride in the city, that's a great option. And another thing, too, is that I met a guy recently who um, had a fat bike. He, he was doing like a really long, epic commute every day, like 25K both ways. And I asked him, how do you do that on a fat bike? And he sort of laughed and said, well, I put an electric motor on it. So there's those options out there, too. If you've got a huge ride and you're committed to it and you want to get a pedal assist motor on your fat bike, then I say all the power to you. Yeah. Speaking of electric, I'm thinking back to, um, you know, the last four or five years. I, I follow the industry news pretty closely and used to subscribe to a magazine that, that covered covered this stuff every, you know, every month. And. Um, I stopped subscribing because every month it was the same old story. It was um, bike shops are going to get killed by online shopping. How do we save it? And can the bike companies stop making new models of things? And can we just like grow the the current line? So, you you know, you have the 26 inch, you have the 29, you have plus bikes. And then, you know, fat bikes came into the mix. And I didn't really think much of them because I thought it was just another one of kind of those gimmicky gimmicky things but yeah i I agree that now it it seems more commonplace and and now the gimmicky things seems to be the e-bikes but uh (laughs) yeah it's 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 funny how things 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 evolve and i imagine yeah this year i think will be the first year for me to to really get on one yeah you're right it's the gimmicky side of it is interesting uh you know and and you know this the bike industry is notorious for that you know it's very trendy in some cases too so i wasn't sure if fat bikes were going to stick, but I think we're, we may have, we may be over the hump at this point. So I think I'm still seeing more and more of them and it's, and getting out there on a fat bike in the winter is just so much fun that, that, you know, I think lots of people are realizing that and getting up there and giving it a try. Cool. Well, uh, we have to chat about how to stay warm because I imagine you've, you've, you've mastered a lot of, uh, a lot of the demons in this regard. So, maybe let's let's start with uh yeah just the periphery uh, hands and hands and feet how what have you learned uh from from you know the the commuting and the, the writing about how to stay warm yeah well my message is always um you don't really need any if, from a commuting perspective i don't think you need anything special you know put some boots and some gloves and a nice scarf and a toque and you're good to go um but um once you get into it i think you really need to get in and try it and um, you need to uh, do some trial and error, figure things out. But the, the other nice thing about fat bikes is that along with the popularity of them, there's been this associated gear that's come along with them too. So whereas 10 or 15 years ago, it was really tough to find 
uh, winter gloves or shoes or helmets uh, for, for, for cycling. Now that stuff is everywhere. So it's really great. I mean, uh, for my commute, uh, I just wear a pair of gloves. I have a single speed in the winter, so I don't have to worry about shifting and that kind of thing. But if you want to ride a bike there where you need the use of your fingers, there's lots of great lobster mitts, you know, that separate your fingers into uh, groups of two, which keeps them a bit warmer. Um, you can also get a pair of bar mitts or pogies, they're called. You probably use these, Ryan, um, where they cover up, you know, it's big fluffy things that cover up your handlebars. You six slide your hands into them, and it still allows you to make use of your gears, and you can shift uh, shift a little bit easier. Uh, so that certainly helps. Um, uh, and f- you're right, feet is probably the most important part. Uh, I find that the hardest part in the wintertime. Um, I I always tell people, ditch the cycling shoes. I have yet to see a pair of cycling shoes that keeps my feet warm. But, um, you know, I'm also not out there buying. I know there's lots of new fat bike shoes that would probably be great. Um, I just wear a pair of old boots. I've got some hiking boots. And even when I was really cold last week when it was so cold, I pulled out my classic Canadian Sorrells and wore those. And they're not the most efficient boots in the, war- in the world, but they certainly kept my, uh, kept my feet warm. So I think sometimes we overthink these things. You just have to get out there and give it a try. Well, I, I got a fun story on the, the bar mitts. So they, they were a sponsor of uh, the Bike Pack Summit this, uh, uh, this last October. And uh, so th- they shipped us up. I don't know, something like 10, 15 pairs of bar mitts and a whole other range of accessories. It, it was quite a bit. It was, it was very nice of them to do that. Um, and then I, in, in, in my excitement, I, I forgot to, to keep a pair for my, for myself, uh, going into the winter. Cause it wasn't quite that cold yet. So I wasn't thinking about it. So I gave away all these things and, and here I am you know, in double double digit minus temperatures, and uh, I, I'm looking to now buy a pair of bar mitts, and I gave them all away at the summit. So, um, yeah, okay. So, yeah, hey, stash those away when you can. Yeah, you you know the organizers got to be a bit smarter about these things when the freebies come in. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, take some for yourself. That's yeah. the bonus of being the organizer. Yeah, next year. <laughs> Um, okay, so we got hands, we got feet. Um, anything you've learned in particular about how to keep your your core temperature warm? Yeah, I've got a um, whole section in the book about uh, dressing for the weather. And, you know, it's a bit, you know, I have a bit of a rant about the way we dress for winter these days. I think as Canadians, especially, we've gotten really bad at it over the years. I think those of, you know, those of us who are outdoors a lot, uh, people who are riding bikes year round, people who ski, they get it. But, you know, the reason I think a big part of the reason so many people say they hate winter is because they don't know how to dress properly for it. So, you know, it just comes down to, for me, it's always about the base layer. You know, if you've got to spend, spend a little bit of money on a decent uh, uh, merino wool base layer and some long underwear, and especially those socks, I find that if you've got a good pair of socks, you'll be a much happier person in general in the wintertime. So I always find like a nice merino wool base layer, a couple of uh, cotton mid layers, and then an outer shell, you know, you're fine. The key, I think, for riding in winter, and I still haven't mastered this after doing it for so many years, is not to over overdress. I always tend to freak myself out and put on one more layer than I probably should, and I get to work, uh, you know, dripping with sweat, which which is fine if you have a shower. But even if you're out on a recreational ride and you're sweating too much, that can be dangerous in the cold because, you know, Ryan, you know this. Once you cool down and you're sweating, that's when the chill sets in and things start, can get dangerous. But um, so I always say, be a little cold when you get started. You probably use one layer, one layer less than you think you would, especially if it's one layer less than you would wear, say, going for a walk in the winter or something. Because once your legs start pumping, you're going to stay warm. Um, so you know, be a little cold when you get started, and then uh, things will warm up as you go. 
Yeah, I was uh, speaking with my wife, uh, Sarah, last week. Um, yeah, because I, I w- I've been thinking more about the winter cycling because one of the, the routes that I'm scouting for uh, my guidebook is is the Icefield Parkway in winter. Um, and, you know, the more I've been thinking about the gear and the logistics, I, I said to her, I said, uh, you know, if you can become a, a good winter cyclist, like knowing what to pack, you can pretty much you're you're set for any weather condition um because you know now i'm thinking you know from a bike packing perspective there's there's one thing if you are racing to to work in the winter and you get a little bit sweaty but there's another thing if you have to do it day after day and you don't necessarily get that you know reprieve from the the cold weather you're always in it so um i'm i find myself being hyper conscious right now about not only the types of layers but um uh, staying on on top of the layering as you mentioned so so not getting uh wet so it'll be an interesting uh discovery season here yeah i mean that's the key i think you're right is trying to find that sweet spot between staying warm uh without sweating too much and uh you know it can be tough it's even tougher i think when you're commuting and it's a short commute because it takes a little while to get your body warm um and and you know, if your commute is short enough that you just get started, then you stop again. I think you sort of tend to overdress to get rid of that chill at the beginning. So if you have a longer ride and you can uh, make it work without getting too sweat, sweaty, then I think you're probably set, you know, and, um, uh, sweating before you go into the office is a little different than sweating on a big ride out of the ice fields parkways in the winter. So, you know, if you can master it on your commute, you're probably set for those bigger rides in the wintertime. Cool. Well, I'm I'm thinking about one of the the takeaway lessons I I got from your book, or one of the key points that jumped out at me. And I believe it was. I apologize. I don't have your book in front of me, but I believe it was um, someone you were interviewing uh, from. I believe it was the University of Calgary. No, sorry, there was another quote I'm thinking of. But you mentioned um, the need to break this the stigma as far as what it takes to get involved with uh winter cycling. And I remember you're talking about your coworkers. Um, you know, you, you would come into the office and they would be kind of in awe and um, uh, you know, the first thought is like, how do you do that? You know, you're so extreme. And and you would actually make a point of um tr- trying to dismiss dismiss that as as something that only a few people uh can do. Can can you explain that one yeah. a little bit? Yeah, I mean this is a bit of a touchy one, I think in some cases because you know, the people like the pioneers, I would say, of, of riding in the winter are those people who really like that sort of image of, you know, they're very hardy. They want to get out there and uh, beat the elements and they're really tough. And, you know, I kind of like that feeling, too. That's part of the reason I love riding in the winter is, you know, I like to be part of winter again. I like to feel like I'm not afraid of it anymore. I like to feel like I can deal with it. There's some self-reliance there. But I also think that image of the uh, sort of uh, diehard winter cyclist, it's kind of discouraging for people who are just thinking about it. You know, if, if uh, someone rolls into work and they like to brag about how tough they are, that doesn't really bode well for others who want to try it out. You know, the, I think what where cities especially really benefit is getting more people on bikes. You're not going to get a casual rider if they think that, you know, you have to have all this special gear and all these special bikes and you have to be a uh, superman to get up there and do it. So there is a bit of a, there is a bit of a, you're right, stigma might be the right word about it. And and I think as winter cyclists, we kind of bring this upon ourselves. And I would say the bike industry is guilty of this as well. 
because they often use that. That's the way they market bikes, especially winter bikes, is uh, you know for extreme athletes. And that's great. Uh, those people, you know, God bless them. We wouldn't be here without them. Um, but they're maybe not the most accessible uh, uh, to people who are interested in, in in riding a bike. So uh, you know, that's why one of my messages is always just get up and give it a try. It's not as hard as you as hard as you might think. We sort of need to get over that. And I encountered this again this week when it was so cold. Um, I often see on the streets here in Calgary people commuting in their ski helmets and goggles. And, you know, I used to tease them about that, like, you know, they're being a little dramatic. You know, I've never had the need for that. I've never even worn uh, pogies or bar mitts or anything. I just wear my bike helmet with a toque underneath. Um, But it was so cold, I, you know, I thought, well, if ever I'm going to try wearing a ski helmet on my bike commute, this is the week to do it. So I did it. And, you know, it was pretty damn comfortable, (laughs) pretty warm and comfortable wearing that ski helmet with the goggles on. So, you know, it was maybe a tad embarrassing um, to show up at work wearing a ski helmet. But, you know, on those super cold days, it's it came in pretty handy. So, uh, you know, maybe I'll change my tune a bit. I'll stop poking fun of those people who are, uh, you know, really gear up and have all the gear and uh, say that, you know, um, if it works for you, go for it. You know, if that's what makes you comfortable and you want to do it, go ahead. Just um, recognize that, you know, you don't have to be like that to ride. And I think this really came up in researching my book when I went to especially a city called Aulu, which is in northern Finland, which calls itself the most bike-friendly winter city in the world. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a city of about 100,000 people. It's not a huge city. It's a university town. Uh, but it's really far north. It's almost as far north as um, Iqaluit. So it's, you know, within striking distance of the Arctic Circle. And it's real winter there, right? It's cold. I mean, it's not as cold as Canada because of the jet stream. But they've got snow. They've got real winter that lasts a long time. And they still got 30 or 40 percent of the people in the, in the city riding their bikes every day of the year, uh, which is pretty amazing. So uh, when you go there and you, you see what I saw, which was, you know, at the grocery store, this little granny coming out with a bag of groceries, uh, plopping it into her basket and riding off through the snow, it kind of does uh, demystify winter cycling. You know, if that old lady can do it, then it's probably not something that is as extreme as we make it out to be. Yeah, and speaking of uh, demystifying, I remember you had an interesting stat about the the average winter temperatures, and it would actually surprise uh, most people. Like, like like when we think of winter and we get scared, we're thinking of um, you know we don't get into it because we think winter is all about minus you know twenty minus thirty temperatures. But what did you actually uh, come away with? Yeah, I was looking at you know this is part of our perceptions about winter, which I think. I think our, our perception of winter is probably worse than the reality of winter. You know, I always used to ask people what they think the average temperature in their city is, and they would always underestimate it. They'd always say it's colder than it really was. I mean, average in most Canadian cities, like here in Calgary, I think it was like average winter day is like minus four or something like that. In Winnipeg, which is the coldest one, it was, you know, the average was like minus eight or 10, if I remember right. Um, which is not, you know, it's not nothing, but it's not as cold as we think it is. I think we tend to remember, you know, those cold snaps and the blizzards and the terrible moments of winter, but we don't remember the averages. You know, we don't remember the normal days when you can ride. And so I think that sort of gets in the way of it. It colors our perception of winter. We have a real culture of fear around winter, I think, uh, which is surprising uh, here in Canada. You think that we would embrace it. And we did at one point. I think in the past, we really saw ourselves as winter people. But I think as, you know, insulation became better, our cars became better, you know, the clothing became better, we got better at winter. In a weird way, we've become disconnected from it, too. I think that, you know, we, we don't we don't understand it, we don't relate to it, we don't enjoy it, we don't embrace it the way we used to. 
because it's so easy to hide from it. So, you know, one of the, one of the great things that I got about writing this book was, you know, falling, falling in love with winter again. Um, and, uh, being outside in it is what really drove that. You know, I, I knew that I had to change my relationship. I couldn't ride my bike in winter every day if I complained and hated every moment of it. So I really went out of my way to start finding things that are fun about winter, you know, so I, I started skiing again and, uh, we started doing some, uh, outdoor skating and all these winter activities. And it really changed my whole attitude. I actually look forward to winter now. You know, I don't love when it's minus 25, but those days are so rare, you know, in, in Calgary, I think we've had maybe three or four days in the last three years in which it was actually minus 30. Um, so, you know, when it gets cold, absolutely. But no one's saying you have to ride your bike every day in the winter. If you just do the, the milder days, you still get a lot of riding time in. still makes your life better. You're still going to be a happier person. I think that's all very important, too. And the fact that fat biking in winter, bike packing is taking off, it's, it's just another way of getting out there and enjoying winter. And that helps take the fear away as well. Yeah, well, I would say it was it was that stat for me that that made me really rethink uh, or my outlook on, on winter cycling. Uh, but that said, I don't know if I believe you. I don't know if I believe you still. <laughs> I find it interesting, All right. but I think you are a liar, sir. <laughs> well, you check the stats and get back to me on that one. But it really is um, – uh, even if you're not riding your bike every day, there's just so much, it's just so much better to live in Canada and not hate the winter, I think too. I know lots of people will get out of there, like to get out of town and head south. Um, and I get that, you know, who doesn't like the beach, but if you're just dreading it and, you know, feel drudgery all the time, it just makes for such a long, terrible season. So, yeah, in Calgary, we're lucky we've got a big, you know, bright sky. I'm looking out the window right now. It's it's really cold, but it's a beautiful blue sky day. So if you can find a way to enjoy it, I think that's a good thing all around. And kids help, too. I mean, uh, one of the guys I'm inspired by in Calgary is a guy named Doug Dunlop, who, um, you know, he just likes to ride. He does all kinds of things. But he was telling me about bikepacking uh, with his kids um, recently, where he takes them. I think they were 8 and 10 when he first started. They used to go fat bike, bikepacking you know, in the middle of winter. And uh, he just loved being out there, uh, you know, in the mountains. There's nobody else around. You know, they could ride up the frozen rivers and the creeks and the, the trails were empty. And he loved the silence and the isolation of it. And, you know, his kids were a real motivator that way. Too. So, you know, that's a bit extreme for some kids, but he always said it's harder for the adults to get out than the kids. So that certainly helps. Yeah, that's a good segue, actually. If 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 you want to, uh, you know, see a true blue uh, winter cyclist and, and someone that uh, embraces doing it with the family, I believe uh, if we're talking about the same guy, Doug is at uh, Cold Bike is his his website or his handle. Yeah, that's right. Does that sound right? Yeah, he's a he's a inspiring guy. He's just very practical about winter. He really loves the season. Really loves getting out there and does kinds of crazy rides sometimes too. So. You can relate to him, Ryan. He does those epic rides in the wintertime, too. <laughs> uh, so let's move on. I, I want to know about Shifter. Where, where did that project come about, and what is it? Oh, well, Shifter, you know, I've been writing about um, uh, cycling, mostly urban cycling, but all kinds of cycling, for several years uh, when I was working at the Calgary Herald. And it was a great experience. You know, I'm a, I'm a journalist. I'm a trained journalist, so I've been working for 15 years as a journalist. And I just started writing about cycling because it was something I really liked. But the response on it was instant. You know, the feedback was amazing. There was this, um, excuse me, community that seemed to be out there uh, that just embraced the idea of having a voice uh, really quickly. The, you know, there's a real back and forth with the readership. 
And so, you know, when uh, my job changed and I was moving along, I, I wanted to keep that going. So I started Shifter uh, as a way of uh, keeping uh, that going, keeping the community engaged and really focusing on urban cycling. You know, I know a lot of uh, cycling publications focus on recre recreational riding or athletic riding. Um, and that's cool. All those too, and I do a lot of it also. Um, but I do think there's a place for, you know, um, uh, a community that cares about riding their bikes in cities and how that applies to the rest of your life. And there's just so much uh, potential there for to make our lives better, to make our cities better. So it really was just me uh, trying to keep that community alive and, and keeping my hand in it, and also having an outlet for some of the things I like to talk about. So. It's been it's been interesting, um, you know. It's, the community is always is really great. I'm always flooded with ideas about what to write about, um, uh, which is really gratifying too. Um, so you know, uh, that's that's the format for it now, and it's been really gratifying for me. Yeah, you posted an interesting article, um, and I apologize, I didn't see if you wrote it or the artist wrote it, but it was on a, a musician that was. Uh, traveling around and was it the arctic or something playing gigs or what was that oh about? yeah oh philippe yes <laughs> speaking of, of epic winter rides so the, he, i met him uh, last year i was invited to saskatoon uh for a winter bike um event they had like a little winter bike festival so i went and spoke there and we were out for a group ride and he just sort of uh, rode up beside me and started chatting and he you know he's uh he he's a Chilean who's living in Canada. He's a musician. He plays bass. He's got long hair, big goatee. Um, but he was like just started telling me these uh, crazy stories about how he had just gotten back from the Arctic, that he had ridden his bike uh, through the Arctic to go to a music gig, that he rides his bike to all of his gigs no matter where they are, that he had crossed Canada several times. At first, I thought he was lying <laughs> because who rides their bike? up the Dempster Highway in the middle of winter. It's an ice road for most of it. And he said he was on his bike the whole way. But, you know, he started showing me photos and had these great, amazing stories out of it. So, you know, that was last year. And we've kept in touch, and he's been doing things again. Like, he uh, emailed me about a month ago saying, hey, I'm riding up to northern Saskatchewan. i got a few gigs planned. So he lives in Saskatoon, and he rode, I think he said 4,000 kilometers from Saskatoon up to places that, almost never get visitors in the wintertime, you know, like Uranium City, which is really remote. Um, and, you know, these are really interesting First Nations communities. And Philippe would go there, he would play a gig on his base, and he would uh, go to the school, and he would uh, give a mo motivational talk to the students there. And he's a really interesting guy, because he's not like, you know, as far as epic cyclists go, he, he didn't seem to be in it, you know, to sort of prove something to himself. I think he just liked riding a bike and he likes getting out to these weird places. And he really just wanted to try the new things. He seemed like a real explorer to me. So, you know, he actually did last year ride all the way up to uh, Tuktoyaktuk on the Arctic coast of the Northwest Territory uh, play a music gig. So he's just one of those quirky guys who came up and he's really interesting, quite inspiring, actually. It's funny, you know, the circles you travel in, th some things seem extreme and some things uh, seem commonplace. Our first podcast was actually uh, with uh, Greg Van Tegum, a uh, Jasper rider who uh, rode up to uh, Tuktoyaktuk. So now I'm starting to think that this is a, a destination that people are uh, frequently uh, cycling along, uh, which is probably not yes, the I case. Yes, I remember reading about his too. Yeah, well, you better add it to your list, Brian. You might be one of the third one to get up there. I uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, it's it's intriguing, but I, I have a healthy respect for um, 
I, you know, I, I, it's really, it comes down to, I don't want to go out freezing in a snowbank. Um, I always figured it'd be something in a warm climate. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's something I, it's something I got to work on. Um, so if you're going to go, you're going to go somewhere warm. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. 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 Where they, <laughs> ideally there's uh, Spanish speaking, there's a beach and, um, you know, as, a, as, as I gasp for my last breath, I go, oh, well I had a good run, not shivering as I'm doing it. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. I have the opposite. I feel like sometimes when it's really cold and I feel like I can just lay down the snowbank right here and that would be a good way to go. So you, <laughs> you, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned, uh, Saskatoon and, and their, um, cycling, uh, summit or event or whatever you want to call it. I've, I've been noticing more of these popping up. You would probably have a better read on this than, than I do, but, um, are there, are there a lot of big conferences going on? Does each country kind of have its, its own thing? And like, what are, like, what are people talking about when they go to these things? Yeah, it's amazing. The last four or five years, I'd say every city seems to be doing something to encourage people to ride their bikes in the wintertime. And, um, often it's uh, a little, you know, in Saskatoon, it was a little weekend conference, you know, we all came back from the ride and ate chili and drank beer and talked about winter riding. Um, uh, I'm going to a conference in Montreal later this year about winter cycling. It's an international conference. This maybe the fourth time they've done it. I've been to a couple of them. Uh, full of people from all over the world uh, sharing ideas. It's really cool because uh, riding in the winter is, seems to be fairly new in most places. I'm sure you know, these are often filled with you know, conference sessions about plowing and how to salt roads properly, which sounds really mundane. But if you're a, if you're a planner, an urban planner or something like that, this can be right up your alley. And it's really important stuff too. We know that, you know, uh, the cities that maintain their bike infrastructure in the winter are the ones that have the best winter riders. Um, so that's happening all the time. We're seeing more and more fat bike festivals popping up. Uh, last year, or maybe it was two years ago, we started here in Calgary, Winter Palooza, which is a winter bike festival, which was full of all kinds of, you know, Santa Claus rides. And there was um, uh, 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 studded tire races on the local ice rink. Uh, these are popping up all over the place. It's really cool. There's another thing that's really cool to see is Winter Bike to Work Day, which started by a couple uh, guys I know in Winnipeg. And um, it's nothing formal. It's really just let's pick a day and let's all challenge ourselves to see how many people we can encourage to ride on that day. And uh, so they set up a website in which you can register to ride the most days. And in like three or four years, it's spread around the world. It's amazing. I think the, you know, one of the winners was in Croatia one year. Um, it's become like this sort of friendly competition between cities to see who can get more people riding. And I think it just shows that in, in most of these winter cities, there is this core group of people who think this is a great idea. And at one point, it was easy to dismiss those people as crazy. And maybe I fell into that category, too. But, you know, we're seeing a really slow and steady growth of the number of people riding in the wintertime. And um, I think that's really encouraging. You know, here in Calgary, we've, uh, we've been counting numbers of winter riders for the last couple of years, and it's on a slow uptick as well. You know, I don't think we're ever going to get the same number of people riding in the wintertime as we get in the summertime. But um, we've already seen in some places the number of winter riders are up to where the summer numbers were just a few years ago, too. So I think there's uh, there may be something in the air out there that's encouraging people to give this a try. How are, how are and I apologize, uh, Tom, I, I'm not sure if it's your end or mine, but the, the call was breaking up a bit there. I, I think we got the gist of it. Um, but as I was as listening to you talk about numbers, you know, I, I get asked about stats a lot and there's not a lot for the, the bike packing world right now. So when, you, when you're measuring 
uh, commuters in Calgary, like uh, I'm quite familiar with how they do it in the summer, but uh, in the winter, is it, is it pretty much the same idea? Like there's a mat across the snow and, you know, you, a rider goes over it and it counts the rider. How do they manage that in, in kind of uh, inclement weather conditions? Well, um, here in Calgary, they've installed a number of um, they're interesting little things uh, buried in the pavement. It uh, sort of creates an electromagnetic field. And whenever that field is broken by a bike crossing over top of it, it counts it. And, you know, I've, I've done a bit of research on it, and they seem pretty accurate, and they say they work very well in the winter as well. So we're getting pretty good uh, statistics on the number of winter riders now, um, based more on than what it used to be in the old days, which, which was those mats or even uh, every year there's a – here in most cities they do what's called a cordon count, which is you basically you hire a bunch of summer students to s- stand beside roads and jot down a number of cars and bikes and pedestrians walking by. So they still do that, but it's nice to have daily information. And what's cool here in Calgary, too, is that information, that data is posted onto a website every day. So you can see exactly how many people uh, crossed over those um, sensors every day of the year. And it really is interesting to see the to see the, the trends and to see how the impact of weather and to see where those hardy riders really are. Hmm. I'm going to put you on the spot here. I, I, this question just came to me. Um, but as far as recording stats for bike packers. Um, you know, I, I know it's not necessarily your, your area of expertise right now, but if, if, if I was to put together maybe a, a series of questions or a survey to hand out, like what, what kind of, what kind of stats do you think would be relevant for the bikepacking community to start keeping tabs on as far as your, your experience with these things? Like I, I, if, if I'm going to be involved with it, I'd rather be, you know, ahead of the curve instead of, you know, realize 10 years down the road, if, if only I had started keeping track of this. Yeah, it'd be great to have numbers, wouldn't it? I mean, uh, especially something that's growing like bikepacking is, you know, you know, I've done a bit of work, um, trying to track, um, even hikers. And that's a, that can be a difficult thing to do. I know, uh, some trailheads have automated counters that will register people as they walk by. I know some of the Backcountry, I know Parks Canada uses um, the, reg- the registers, the registration books to keep track of people on some trails. But, you know, it's a big backcountry <laughs> there's a, and there's people all over the place. So it's a tough one to, to track. I mean, I think people, researchers have struggled, especially researchers in that sort of outdoor arena have, have struggled for years to measure, you know, how many people are getting out there and hiking and using the trails. You know, I know uh, the industry sometimes uses uh, sales figures as measures, you know, the number of sales of backpacks and that kind of thing. So I wonder if gear sales would be one way to look at it, too. But, you know, other than uh, getting up there on the trails and counting people, that's a tough one. I'm not sure if there's an easy answer for it. Hmm. Okay. well, thanks for the start anyways. So maybe, maybe, you know, looking at the the bigger picture outside of the city, um, I saw that you're involved with Travel Alberta. You're the the global content manager. What, what does that mean? Um, I'm sort of like the editor of the content that's created here at Travel Alberta, which is really cool. I mean, we're uh, creating stories to uh, stories, videos, photography, all about how great it is to travel to Alberta, which everybody should do. 
Um, so, you know, given my passions about winter and getting out the outdoors and that sort of thing, it's been a, a really nice, it's been a really nice fit too. And it's great to be able to promote things like uh, fat biking in the wintertime and uh, uh, cycling in the summertime too. So uh, all that's really exciting. So is, is biking or is bike packing coming across your table at all? Do you get stories? Do you get pictures? Is that even on the radar for what you're doing? I'd say it's on the radar, but it's uh, pretty small still. I think most people still haven't are still learning what it is to start with. I mean, um, I'd say only only this year is, uh, or maybe last year is, has fat biking really emerged as something that is uh, grown beyond sort of a niche of people. And I think that bike packing is probably the next one to come. We're not seeing a whole lot about it, but we're no, you know, we know there's people into it. We know more people are doing it. We know it's awesome, and more people should get out there and try it. So I just feel like it, it'll it's going to break in a couple of years. I think. So the like your mandate with Travel Alberta is it to promote. Um, you know, public, uh, more commercial um, land and activity like the parks, national parks, provincial parks, or are you, um, you know, do you focus basically on Alberta as a whole? No, we're trying to, uh, we look at the whole province there. You know, we, we, we're trying to promote all of the province as a destination um, that people should check out. Okay, because I'm thinking about that because with the, the guidebook that I'm working on right now, um, a lot of the routes are, are pretty limited as far as going through the the park system and so a lot of it operates you know on the the crown lands and things like that so i was wondering if uh you know that falls out of the the mandate so it doesn't is what i'm hearing no i mean we are looking at promoting all uses you know all types of travel and all kinds of activities all around the province so you know anything that falls into that is something we'd be looking at okay cool so uh, from one from one author to another, I, I, I know there's always kind of a you get a kind of an itchy trigger finger to, to write a second book after you've written your your first book. And, and being pretty well a full time writer, uh, do you have any uh, additional writing projects on the go right now? Well, right now I'm putting most of my writing time into Shifter, um, which is great. But, you know, once you write a book, maybe you had the same experience when you're finished, you feel like that's exhausting. I'm never doing that again. <laughs> and then a year later, you start, you start thinking more and more. So I've got a few ideas percolating, but this is what I wanted to ask you too. How about you? Have you got one in the works? Uh, well, the, so yeah, I guess this, this might be the first time you've heard about it. So it's uh yeah, bike packing guidebook for the, the Canadian Rockies. So, uh, flexing a bit of a different, but similar, uh, muscle, but it, yeah, and i I fully agree that when I submitted the manuscript and, the the final edited manuscript i should say for a, a purpose written i i i was fully ready to be done with that and and never look <laughs> at it again it's uh you get kind of sick of you know hearing yourself in your own head um but yeah like you give it a year and you you have this tool and you you in your belt now and you you feel almost compelled and and obligated to to try to use it and and improve on it so uh, yeah, I figured, well, I'm going to do something different. I'll, I'll write about biking, but, uh, I'll, I'll try something different, more of a research, uh, capacity. So yeah, a guidebook, uh, is, is, is on the plate right now for, um, uh, spring 2018, uh, release, I think. Well, that sounds great. That's a, a resource that's needed. I don't see a lot of great, um, resources about bikepacking. So I'll be sure to pick one up. Cool. Um, so what else we got here? So we, we covered Shifter, we covered Travel Alberta, uh, talked about uh, t- t- talked about Frostbike. Uh, I guess 
most importantly, where do you stand on bike packing? Is it something that's, you know, talking about cycling all the time, is it something that uh, you're starting to get drawn more into or, or not at all? And, and why? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of my best trips the last few years is a bike packing trip. <laughs> and maybe not in a way, you know, I was on a school trip with one of my kids. Uh, and, you know, so to be out there with a, um, a teacher and about 20, you know, grade eight kids who were all bikepacking, some of whom had barely ridden a bike before, was like a really great experience, actually. You know, it's great to get kids out in the outdoors anytime. But when they've got this added element of riding a bike, um, I think it's really good for them. They have to have some mechanical know-how. They need to improvise. They need to overcome challenges. And it turned out to be a bit of an epic trip. Um, because things didn't go all well everywhere we planned, which often makes for the best trips, I think, too. So that was really cool. You know, um, we're looking to get out again. Um, and I really, I'm really happy to see more and more people doing it. I'd love to see more trails open up and get people out there. And you know, I think for the first time last year, I was uh, backpacking and came across another person bikepacking at the same time. So that's kind of a cool experience as well. So I think you're uh, on the right track, and I'd love to see a guidebook on it. So I wish you luck. Yeah, I, I remember. I saw. You, I saw you. I think the last time I saw you, uh, you were poking your head in at the the bike pack summit. You happened to be in Canmore, uh, yes. so hopefully we uh, caught your curiosity and, and and might have you in attendance and maybe maybe even as a as a speaker uh, next September if you're around. Yeah, well, well maybe we'll yeah, run across each other on the trails one of these times too. <laughs> For sure. Well, I, I know you you, uh, you took off your, your lunch to, to do the podcast, and I appreciate that, Tom. So we'll, we'll let you get back to it, but... Uh, Yes, uh, thank you very much for, for coming on and sharing your, your wealth of knowledge on uh, winter biking. Uh, thanks for having me, Ryan. Always good to talk to you. Cool. Until next time. See you, Tom. Take care.